Welcome to the Sick to Death podcast, a history of medicine in 10 objects, which are on display at our brand new medical museum in the heart of historic Chester. Sick to Death is supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, buckle yourselves in. This is going to be a gory ride. When it comes to contagion and popular memory, the Black Death is the big one. It's the deadliest pandemic in recorded history and resulted in the deaths of between 75 and 200 million people in Afro-Eurasia, peaking in Europe between 1347 and 1351. It's the disease by which all other epidemics are measured. In terms of its cultural impact, the Black Death is also extremely important. It's therefore the focus of today's episode. Let's begin with an object from the Sick to Death collection. Dean Patton, you're the head honcho at Sick to Death. We are returning to you to find out what the object is that we're looking at for today's episode. So today we have a pomanda. So a pomanda is, in, in this case, is a little bag and it's stuffed with some herbs and spices and nice smelling things which were uh, popular during plague outbreaks because they believed that it was spread, the plague, through miasma, through the ba bad air and, and, and the bad smells. So people would clasp a, a pomanda, which a bag with all these nice smelling things, and keep it to their mouth as they walked around in the hope that they, it would ward, ward off the miasma, the bad smell. And of course, one of the most iconic images that we have of plague, that of the beaked plague doctor, even though it was a much later development, it did follow the same principle, didn't it? That beak would have held similar kind of herbs and nice smelling things to, to kind of keep the plague at bay when the plague doctor was doing his work. So it's quite a relevant object for today for, for sick to death and our little plague doctor mascot. Before we go into the history, it's important to take a moment to get our heads around the science. Infectious disease is the name we give when an organism is invaded by disease-causing agents called pathogens. We should note that no two diseases are the same, but we do break them into categories. So, in no particular order, we have viral infections, examples of which include influenza, smallpox, COVID, HIV, rabies and Ebola. Viral infections usually, but not always, affect many parts of the body. Think of the flu and how it induces head and muscle ache as well as coughs and fatigue. Viruses are made up of a piece of genetic code which are protected by a coating of protein. They invade the host cells and use the components of the host cells to replicate themselves. Next we have bacterial infections, examples of which include plague, cholera, tuberculosis and leprosy. Bacterial infections are usually localised and specific to one infected area of the body, though again, not always. Bacteria are microorganisms, which are made of a single cell. They're incredibly diverse and can live in all manner of environments, and in actual fact, not all bacteria is infectious. Today, bacterial infections can be treated with antibiotics. Viruses cannot. Other infectious diseases come from parasites, such as malaria, transmittable prions, fungi, and also infestations such as ticks. We call something a contagious disease when it's easily transmitted from one person to the other. 
Infectious disease is an unfortunate fact of life and has been around for almost as long as humans themselves, with different diseases dominating countries, cultures and the world as a whole from century to century. Indeed, as soon as humans began to move around, farm and eat and interact with different animal species, outbreaks, epidemics and pandemics were an inevitability. From prehistoric outbreaks in China and epidemics in the ancient world, such as the unknown contagion that crippled Athens in the 5th century BC, to the plague of Justinian which thwarted the Byzantine Empire, and epidemics of Salmonella in South America, the mass spreading of STDs such as syphilis and gonorrhea during the early modern period, the influenza pandemic of 1918 to 1919, HIV, Ebola, and the most recent outbreak of Covid. Let's get back to the medieval period and investigate the Black Death. So the Black Death is caused by a bacteria called Yersinia pestis. That is the only bacteria that I know the name of, so please don't quiz me on anything else later, but Yersinia pestis, I know. That's Dr. Eleanor Yarniger, medieval historian, academic, and author of the forthcoming The Middle Ages, A Graphic History. And it came out initially from the steppes of Asia, and it is transported in the bloodstream of fleas. So a lot of people will say rats. Don't the rats get a bad rat? It's not the rat's fault. It's the fleas, you know. Uh, So and what we kind of think happened is we know that around 1347 or so in Uzbekistan and Kyrgyzstan, people first started getting sick. And this is kind of all interrelated with the fact that over in the steppes and in China, you are experiencing at this point in time what we call the Pax Mongolicana or the Mongolian peace. Basically, there's been uh, a new takeover of China by, by the Mongolian tribes. And so they're kind of like establishing after years and years of a bunch of war, everything's kind of chilled out. And that means that people are doing more traveling across the steppes in order to do trading because, you know, there's not a war going on, so that's safe to do. So people start kind of getting in closer contact with these families of marmots that live out on the steppes. And they manage to get the fleas that were on the marmots that have the Yersinia pestis jump onto the caravan animals. Now, that can be camels, that can be horses, that could be rats that are traveling with them. Um, And when you get Yersinia pestis, uh, it's really um, a terrible disease and And if you don't have antibiotics, which we do now, which will knock it on the head, we've got this completely covered now. What happens is you get a really bad fever, you get really terrible fatigue, and you get these things which are called buboes, which is where the term bubonic plague comes from. And that is when your glands swell up because basically they are trying to filter out your white blood cells as quickly as they possibly can. They get swollen when you get sick. And then they get really hard and they kind of like harden, they swell up to a huge shape and it's incredibly painful and then probably you're going to die. So most people who contract the Black Death, they die within about a week of getting it and most of them don't recover, although there are some instances where um, they do. Interestingly, during the Black Death, which is what we specifically refer to as the outbreak of bubonic plague that happens in the 14th century, basically if if it's plague, the bubonic plague then continues to reoccur all the time after that. But if it's not the specific um, outbreak that happens from about 1347 to 1351, it's not the Black Death, it's just a plague. You know, uh, it's like how it's it's not champagne unless it comes from the Champagne region. It's just, it's just sparkling death if it's outside of uh, the 14th century. But one of the other things that we find interestingly in in records, people writing about their the experiences of the plague is that there also seems to be what they sometimes refer to as like mnemonic plague. And there are some people who also seem to struggle with breathing. 
at the time. And we're not necessarily really sure what that's about now. We're not sure if that was something else that was happening concurrently with it, or if some people just kind of struggle to breathe a lot when they've got it. But there is, we know, some kind of like breathing thing attributed to that as well. Anyway, it was really, really bad in terms of it's it's very communicable person to person. So even though it's come off of fleas in the first instance, if it, it moves from person to person very quickly. It's really highly infectious. And so by the time it gets to people, it starts moving through people really quickly and it travels out of the steps. It hits over in uh, Europe on the Black Sea first. Um, and then it travels from the Black Sea down um, with salt merchants who are uh, fleeing war. Again, Mongols. <laughs> so they're, they're fleeing uh, from Mongol invasions and they go down through the Black Sea through Constantinople. They drop some plague off there and then they get over to Genoa and they get the plague there. And then it just kind of starts going out in ripples. All in all, by the time that the Black Death is over, just the 14th century iteration, mind you, about 25% of the entire world's population has died which is a lot of people. And part of that is that number, to, to even kind of bring it home, is that, you know, the Americas are spared from this and Australia is spared from this. They don't have to deal with the plague at the time. So there are whole populations that don't deal with it. What we're talking about is Europe, Asia and Africa experiencing the plague. And so there, in order to get the 25% of the entire world population, we're talking about Europe actually in some places losing 70% of the population, 60% of the population. So... It really varies place to place. I mean, even within Europe, there's some variation. So, for example, in Bohemia, they're largely spared the plague. But you have real trouble in places like Italy or in England or in the German lands uh, that get hit really, really hard. So we know, for example, Florence loses about 60 percent of its population. So it is absolutely just beyond our ability to really even understand it how large it was and how devastating it was. You know, I can rattle these sort of numbers off, but it doesn't even really make sense because we have no real way of conceptualizing more than half of everyone we know dying. I think you have to see the Black Death as we refer to the, the great outbreak in the mid-14th century as the Black Death, but people of the 14th century and earlier suffered outbreaks of plague and you know, many other ailments all the time, really. But this was, this was the really big one. That's Professor Michael Wood medieval historian, television presenter, and author of The Story of England. It came at a point by which, in the Western world, uh, medicine was being taught in universities, you know, surgeons' school in Paris in the 13th century, and, you know, Paris, Bologna, Padua, Oxford. From the 12th century onwards, uh, the study of medicine became really important. This is in the higher reaches of society now. We're not talking about, you know, the, the village. And they're also learning from the Arab world because a lot of the great works of Greek medicine were being translated into Latin from Arab sources. So knowledge of medicine was really growing and anatomy and all this sort of stuff. And uh, you start getting really important books. And the Black Death focuses on all this in a really big way, as you'd expect, you know. And the greatest figure... And he's a really great figure in the whole history of European medicine is this uh, French doctor called Guy de Choliac, who was born probably around 1300, died in 1368. And he was at that time working in Avignon when the Black Death hit. And 
He's a really, really remarkable figure. He stayed in the city when all everybody else ran away if they could, and he observed very carefully, noted the symptoms, later published it as part of this gigantic book he wrote, the great book of surgery, Chirurgia Magna. And uh, he actually says in the book that he got the Black Death, but he survived it, which, of course, you could. And he wrote about various treatments, and he's a brilliant, brilliant diagnostician, if I can put it that way. He talks about January 1348 and the great death toll beginning in our case in that month and lasted for seven months. And then he, he describes the different kinds of ailments. In the first couple of months, continuous fever and spitting of blood and you died within three days. And then for the, the, the remaining five months or so of the major outbreak, what happened was people got continuous fever, but then there were ulcers and boils in the extremities, especially under the armpits and in the groin, and you died within five days. And it was so contagious, especially when people were spitting blood, he says, that it wasn't only through living in the same house, but actually being in the presence of another person, you could catch it, you know. So uh, he recommends all sorts of things, keeping everything very clean, purifying the air, you know, burning incense and uh, having fires, but with smoke to cleanse rooms, healthy diet. He thought, you know, you had to stay as healthy as possible when you were hit by this kind of terrible outbreak. Like all medieval surgeons, he recommended bleeding as well, you know, a false theory that you needed to, to let blood to help people. But, and he fought against the terrible racist ideas that were going on at the time, you know, among some of these Christian communities were very racist towards the Jews. And as in all these crises, somebody has to be blamed. And he, he, he used science to say, you know, this is not true. We have to realise that, you know. And so his his book, which came out of his experience of the Black Death, becomes one of the great um, landmarks of medical history, really. And from, from that time onwards, you, you're effectively moving out of the Middle Ages into the early modern. In England, we have literature touching upon the impact of the Black Death. What role did it play in the everyday lives of people such as Julian of Norwich? So she was born in 1343. The Black Death was reaching England in about 1349. So she was a very young girl. That's Dr. Yanina Ramirez, medieval historian, broadcaster and author of Julian of Norwich, A Very Brief History. And the city that she grew up in, Norwich, it was the second city of England. It was a huge city and it was very well connected with trade links across to particularly Flanders and, and the continent. So lots and lots of people flooding into their docks, to their ports, bringing with them plague. And she would have known that there was this awful disease that was destroying their population. Up to two thirds of Norwich's population may have been lost in the original Black Death. But what then happened was there were subsequent plagues that hit all the way through her later adult life. There was a, a particularly virulent one that, that affected children where a further 26% of the uh, population was killed. And that's on an already decimated population. And it's very possible that Julian had a family of her own, a husband and family of her own, who themselves may have been lost in, in death. There's so many moving passages in her book. She doesn't say directly that the people around her are dying, but she describes seeing death and she describes seeing the effects of plague. And when she makes this decision around the age of 40 to become an anchoress, it seems such a strange decision, 
But think about it. This is a woman who is already reaching what would be considered old age in this period. She's lived a life. She's probably loved and lost. And if she has children, they're grown up. They've they've moved on or she's lost them. And she has made this decision to ruminate, contemplate, think and learn in an environment where she is safe. Inside a room, she's safe from disease. She took herself into a room where she was, her body was safe from being mowed down in the street by extreme anti-heretics. She's taking herself away from politics, from this, on her very doorstep, there's violence playing out. The bishop that would have put her in the room in the first place, Henry Dispenser, he was known as the fighting bishop because he led the crusades on the continent in support of the Pope. And so she was surrounded by death, violence, disease. And she chose to go into this room and write. I think the thing to remember is that medieval people, early medieval people, high middle ages, the great outbreak of 1348, as Guy de Choliac describes, which hit the whole of Europe and much further afield, of course, was one of about seven great outbreaks between the 1340s and the early 1400s. So people lived with these things. They lived with the constant fear that it was going to run through the population. And of course, in in the 1348 outbreak, maybe a third of the population of Europe died. Uh, I mentioned the village of Kibworth, uh, the, the staggering death toll in the village rolls, which still survive in Merton College, list, I think it's... 67% of the tenants die, you know. We don't know about the women and children, except unless the women were, you know, unless they were female tenants, because they're only interested in the people who actually have the tenancies. They don't re- describe everybody else. But that's a ginormous death toll, really. And medieval people lived with that fear all their lives. In Islamic-ruled Granada, Ibn al-Khatib also lived through the Black Death, and recorded his thoughts and experiences. Ibn Khatib, he's a polymath who served in the Nazarid court of Granada. That's Shafi Musadiq, journalist with a special interest in medieval Andalusia. And he's an interesting person because he wrote on the nature of contagion in an epidemic. He witnessed the Black Death of 1349 in Granada. That wipes out about a third of the population. So... After that, he goes out to apply some science and logic on some theological proverbs. There's an Islamic saying by the Prophet Muhammad that goes like this. If you hear of a plague in a land, then do not go into it. If it happens in a land where you are, then do not go out of it. So Ibn Khatib goes out to see if this is true and applies some kind of logic and rationalism behind this. And what he finds is that the transmission of disease happens through clothing, even earrings. He also reports on nomadic tribes and Bedouins in North Africa, pretty much uninflicted by contagious diseases because they live in the open air. And he finds that prisoners in Seville are also unaffected by the pandemic because of their isolation. Medieval people tried a number of ways to combat plague, from pomanders that were mentioned at the beginning of the podcast by Dean, to religion. And during this time, in the Christian world, the role of religion and relics was heightened. 
relics and in fact religion itself was an extremely important part of everything that was going on in terms of the Black Death and pandemics, contagion, whatever you want to call them. That's Dr Emma Wells, academic, broadcaster and author of the forthcoming Heaven on Earth, The Lives and Legacies of the World's Greatest Cathedrals. It was sort of felt, particularly started in, I would say, Italy, sort of 14th century Italy. We have uh, Giovanni Boccaccio. He's the writer of The Great Decameron. And he questioned, in fact, whether plague was sent by God for humans' correction. So plague was, it was seen that, you know, they were making up for all of, all of humanity's sins and therefore being inflicted on the human body in this torturous way. So, you know, many believe the plague was God's punishment. And as a result, as often people did at these times, they sought the aid of pretty much anything they could. There there wasn't modern medicine as we think of, but particularly relics or as, you know, we could call them sacred objects, which had been in contact with either the Holy Family or the saints, They were what they usually turned to in times of strife. So this could be anything from a place that a saint had been in contact with or the Holy Family or fragments of their body or whatever it might have been. And they would go to them. They may kiss relics. They may lick the relics. They may drink the blood of a saintly person. So for centuries, these relics inspired and comforted in particularly dire times. And what's really interesting was that the Shroud of Turin became actually a beloved relic during the Black Death. And a lot of this seems to derive from the sort of socially distant, craving human contact. Sacred artefacts such as the Shroud of Turin were heavily promoted by the church. The Shroud of Turin became a beloved relic because of the Black Death. And the reason for this, it's possibly, you know, one of the most famous relics, in fact, still is to this day, is because uh, medieval Christians were living through, you know, not just the Black Death, but through England and France's Hundred Year War. So people were dying, essentially. So they were primed to receive and venerate images of saints, of their saviour, in these sort of gorier times to reflect, you know, reflecting their dire circumstances, they were doing what they could. And so the dean of a church in France began displaying what he called the sweat cloth, which had wrapped Jesus's face as he came down from the cross. And in fact, he marketed the relic quite successfully to the public because he felt he'd suddenly sort of struck up a jackpot. And in fact, the entire Black Death was seen as a sort of jackpot era of we can sort of promote, publicise all these relics, all these sacred objects we can. Pilgrims will come or, you know, anyone will come in order to, you know, have these relics inflict a cure on them of the plague or whatever was going on with them. And they could charge outrageous prices to visit the relics for room, for board, for souvenirs. You know, that's not a modern day concept. And so, you know, we could call them gullible or not. I don't think that's really the case. But As a result, the Shroud of Jesus was seen as sort of getting rid of the plague because a lot of people who went to visit it, therefore they didn't die. So as a result, all this pomp and ceremony was created around the Shroud of Turin. And just sort of in relation to these sort of gory times as well, we had a lot of flagellation going on too, when, you know, people would fall to their knees, they would scourge themselves, essentially inflict harm on themselves and then sometimes the blood of these people who were inflicting harm on themselves was soaked up by rags and treated as holy relics. Some towns began to notice therefore that 
these flagellants were bringing plague to the towns where it hadn't even surfaced and they were denied entry, but they responded by doing it even more. So we see people invoking harm on themselves and also therefore trying to cure it as well as in these all these gory ways. From art to medicine, the impact of the Black Death is almost incalculable. We can't really overestimate how much of an impact the Black Death had on all areas of life. For a start, what was so significant about it was it's, it was indiscriminate. It took out all areas of society. So everyone from kings to paupers were affected equally. And just this sense of the uncertainty of it comes through in the art. So there's not much art that directly shows the Black Death and its effect, but there is a famous manuscript illumination that shows coffins opening up. And the people that are in the coffins are a pope, a king, a princess, a pauper, a nun, and they're all of society being affected by it. So you can see that... Ideologically, intellectually, this was huge. To see death on such a broad scale must have just impacted people so deeply. And certainly what we see in terms of artists, we also see reflected in terms of guilds and peasants. There's a freeing up of the artistic market because as you lose 30, 40 percent of artisans and craftspeople, they become in higher demand. So the skills required of the artists are being sought out. Your royal patrons are looking for whatever artists are left and they're going to get paid better and they're going to be celebrated more. So there's a sort of shift in the people that are making art, but there's also a shift in the subject matter. So what we're also seeing is in the light of of so much widespread death, a fascination with death coming through. And this comes in a number of ways, but there's always been the theme of memento mori, remember you will die, going right the way back through medieval art. But at this stage, around the second half of the 14th century, memento mori is being stressed in every direction, everywhere you look, from memento mori jewellery, charms, skulls, you know, remember you shall die, through to transy tombs. And these are perhaps some of the weirdest things that survive from this period. It's a short window of medieval art, the last quarter really of the 14th century, where you see tombs being usually the place where people express an idealised form of themselves. So most medieval tombs, if somebody is a knight in real life, they'll be immortalised as the perfect knight in their tomb monument. They'll have their sword and their loyal dog and their coat of arms. But this part of the tomb is remains and it's lifted up above. So it forms the second story. On the lower story of a transi tomb, you find the same character, the same person, but they are shown as a skeleton. They're shown with rats eating their entrails. You can see their flesh pulling away and their bones and they just look like they're part decomposed. And this is the transy part of the tomb. And these can seem so horrible when people kind of stumble across them in a dark corner of a church. They're like, these transy tombs are horrible, but they are the most stark expression of this change in view that death is being emphasised all the more because they are reeling from seeing mass death and destruction. And certainly when we look at Christian art, the traditional crucifix 
isn't a particularly bloody event. You know, it, in the actual crucifixion, Christ suffocated on the cross. But what you start to see in crucifixions and Christian art in the latter part of the 14th century is an absolute overflowing of blood. Christ has got rivers of blood coming out of his wrists and out of the crown of thorns. And, and it becomes so visceral and physical. So, yeah, there's definite transformations in art. And they're reflecting, I think, a sense that people are trying to come to terms with what they've experienced. So it's interesting from a medical standpoint, because one of the things it kind of threw up is that um, the medicine was not actually adequate at that point in time to deal with it. Um, so, you know, obviously, one of the first port of call that a lot of the rich people go to at this point in time is physicians. And so we know, for example, that the king of France, Philip VI, he goes to the um, medicine faculty at the University of Paris, a very distinguished university, one of the, the fanciest in Europe. And he says, okay, like, look, what, what's going on with the Black Death? Can you explain to this? And in 1348, they're like, oh, yeah, we'll put together this report. And their report, they get all their best minds together. And they say, okay, well, we've looked at the constellations because one of the ways that uh, people conceived of medicine was uh, being connected to the stars. So the idea is that the whole universe is interconnected. And we've seen that Mars is in a bad conjunction with Jupiter. And so it's made a bunch of hot vapor. And it's in this way kind of made these poisonous gases which have come down to Earth. And then it's created what is called a miasma, which is kind of like a bad air, a way of thinking of it. And that miasma is what is sort of causing um, the Black Death. And then that's that's moving from person to person. And so this is an interesting one because it's sort of like, OK, well, cool. If that's happening, how do we stop it? And the Paris faculty are like, well, we don't know. We're just <laughs> saying that's where you get it from. But one of the reasons why um, I like to point this out is because it's a really interesting time where we see that both medicine is inadequate to handle a challenge like this. But at the same time, it's not that far off. In a number of ways. I mean, of course, yeah, like a set, Jupiter and Mars having to do with it is pretty far off. But the idea of miasma is actually kind of close to germ theory. So there's this idea that you get kind of like bad air around sick people. And one of the reasons that you get sick then is you've breathed in that sick person's bad air. So, you know, it's not far from, oh, yeah, okay, well, this sick person has germs on them. And if you get the germs, then you will also get sick. And so we do see things like, you know, people attempting quarantine. That is a thing that they they do kind of attempt or, you know, saying, oh, okay, well, there's really bad sickness in this city. I'm going to leave and I'm going to kind of put myself up in the countryside and avoid this. So we do kind of see strategies that we're still doing now, you know, even where we're still kind of saying, okay, well, social distancing, they're staying away from larger crowds. That's all sort of things that are going on in the medieval period. But one of the things that also kind of happens here is that you do see a lot of people just saying, you know what, medicine isn't going to work and we're just going to have to go a religious route. And so even though there is a kind of belief that most most medieval people think, okay, yeah, well, medicine, that's, that's the place to go. That's where you go to get healed. When they see that it's inadequate, then they kind of start going, oh, Maybe there's a religious answer to this. Maybe we're being punished. Maybe there are all these other things that are happening and going on. And you see people kind of like getting turned off from medicine. But one of the things that also happens as a result of the Black Death and kind of after the Black Death is you see actually a more radical movement towards professionalizing medicine. 
So the idea is that, well, one of the reasons why plague maybe went unchecked is because you got all these people who don't know what they're doing practicing medicine. I mean, what's your mom? How Your mom can't stop the, the Black Death. You know, it's too much. It's too much for her. So you see a push towards professionalization and saying, okay, well, you know what? If you're going to be a physician, you have to have gone to university. We can't just have barber surgeons around the shop bleeding everyone willy-nilly. We can't just have, you know, um, the old lady in the village who makes the really good cough syrup. It's got to be someone who's got a certificate that says that they are able to practice medicine because, you know, we have terrible things like this coming through. And that is, you know, kind of all well and good, but it means that the great majority of people who are practicing medicine suddenly can't do it professionally. So you see people like midwives in a bit of a limbo, right? Because there's no midwife university. Um, women can't go to university because in order to go to university, you have to take holy orders. You have to be, in order to be a student, you actually have to be a member of the clergy and women can't be members of the clergy. So therefore, no midwife can be professionally accredited by a university, right? So you have knock-on effects effects there. And then later on in the early modern period, that leads to a lot of suspicion being kind of cast at midwives because they kind of do this sort of like extra legal role where it's like, oh, well, are they allowed to practice medicine? Aren't they? And then that kind of gets bound up in a lot of people's minds with concepts of witchcraft, which goes on a lot more, all the witch trials and everything in the early modern period. So there's these knock-on strange effects about the way that we think about the professionalization of medicine or the way that we think about who is allowed to practice medicine generally that happens after we see the Black Death come through. Next time, we unravel the breakthroughs of the early modern period, from key figures such as Vesalius, to the way that care for the sick was transformed by the dissolution of the monasteries. With thanks to today's guests, Dr. Yanina Ramirez, Professor Michael Wood, Dr. Eleanor Yarniga, Dr. Emma Wells, and Shafi Musadiq. This series was written, narrated, and produced by myself, Rebecca Radil. It was edited and produced by Peter Curry and was brought to you by Sick to Death. For Medicine Through Time GCSE students, revision notes and sources are available via our website, www.sicktodeath.org.